We're in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. This is God's word, and it reads, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, were the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Amen. One of, one of the, the most fascinating things I learned about this passage is that many, many scholars and theologians think that this, this might have been an ancient hymn, an ancient creed that the, that the church in Colossae recited you know, whenever they gathered as a summary of who Jesus was, or who Jesus is, and what he had done. Now here's the thing. There is a tendency, whenever we come across a passage like this, to just focus on the theology, to focus on the particular titles and, 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 um, and actions that are described by Paul. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just that I think we have to realize that the book of Colossians is not a book of theology. It's not a systematic theology book. What is it? It's a letter. It's a letter to real people like, like you and me. So what I want us to do this evening is I want us to approach this passage with fresh eyes. To understand this passage pastorally. And what do I mean by that word? I mean that Paul's intention here is to care for the Colossian church. What he's wanting to do here is he wants to encourage this young and small church. So why is Paul approaching this letter pastorally? Well, first of all, Paul actually isn't the founder of this church. It was a man by the name of Epaphras, uh, who might have been a a slave or an ex-slave. He founded this church. Secondly, Colossae was a Gentile city, meaning that it was a non-Jewish community, and Paul himself was Jewish. Thirdly, this was a young and small community. Sometimes when we read you know, about these letters, we, 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 we think that maybe they congregated in a place like this. Well, that simply wasn't the case. This was probably a group of 10, 20, maybe 30 people at most uh, getting gathering in people's homes. But the interesting thing about Colossae, the city of Colossae, is that it was surrounded by distinct philosophies, distinct religions, and you know, in the midst of just political turmoil. In other words, just this young city, this young, sorry, this young and small church was surrounded by distinct challenges and distinct struggles. But what's the wonderful thing? If we read earlier in our passage, the church of Colossae, they heard the gospel, and not only did they hear the gospel, the gospel actually prospered among them. Once again, these are non-Jewish people, and the apostle Paul is what? He is the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle to the non-Jewish people. So he was excited, excited. So when we get to verse 15 to 20, what we see here is an explosion of praise. So far, he has been giving thanks to God. And he's saying, I am praying for you. This is a, is this a phenomenon that has never been seen before. God's promises 
The gospel used to be limited to the Jewish people, literally limited to geographic Israel. But now it has expanded outside its borders. So in verses 15 to 20, Paul just simply explodes in praise with this hymn for who Christ is and what he has done among them. So Paul's approach here is not as a theologian. He's not approaching this letter as a theologian. He's approaching as a pastor. And his purpose here is to strengthen and encourage this young church. How? By pointing them towards Christ. And he does this in two ways. One, he answers the question, who is that man on the cross that you believed in? And two, what did that man do on the cross? So regarding the first Paul wants to broaden the Colossian understanding of who Jesus was. You can imagine, right, a man of Galilee teaching around. You know, there might have been some, some impression that he was a mere man, a mere prophet, or a mere teacher. Either maybe the Colossian church believed that, or maybe the critics of the church were believing that. But what does Paul say in verse 15? What are, what are the initial words that come from, his, from this passage? Look at the titles. It says, he is what? The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, personally, I find those terms to be actually very difficult, kind of very vague initially, but I think verse 16 helps us understand what he means by those titles. Notice verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth. That sounds like a passage we are all familiar with. That sounds actually like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the, and the earth. So it seems to you that Paul is you know, giving us a mini flashback to Genesis 1. He wants us to see Genesis 1 with new eyes. He wants us to see Genesis through the lens of the man on the cross. I just, I just, for me, that's probably one of the most radical statements in the New Testament. How can a man who was tortured, who walked Galilee, have any relevance to do with Genesis 1? But that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He has every, it's, it's completely relevant because he was the one behind Genesis 1, 1. He was not a mere man. He was the creator. Just from the upfront, chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. He is the creator, God, the second person, Jesus, the son. Why is it important to start there? Because when our understanding of Jesus broadens and expands, then our understanding of his ministry, the cross and his resurrection, also expands. And it's interesting because for Paul, he, he, he has a need to clarify. When he, said, when he means all is actually all, nothing escapes. He says, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Once again, I said, let's look at this pastorally. Can you imagine the Colossian church hearing this letter and asking themselves, is Jesus even greater or even the creator of Rome? Is Jesus even the creator of the emperor Caesar. It says here, he's a creator of all things, thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities, even Rome, even Caesar. And Paul says, yes, even Rome and even Caesar. All of Genesis 1 applies to Jesus. The reason we start with creation is because it helps us understand the title that he is the image of God. Going back to verse 15, that he is the image there's a tendency to think that image here means look-alike. Well, the, the title here doesn't really mean that Jesus somehow had like the eyes of the Father or the nose of the Father. That's not what it means here. I think that word has a deeper and greater meaning. That word, I think, is closely related to closeness. 
It means intimacy. It means knowledge. Because when, we, when you think about it, creation, it's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon. Because as creator, there is a big distance between creator and creation. There's actually a big distance between heaven and earth. In some ways, you may think of God as far away. You may think of God as unknowable. It's, it's funny. I, so I work at an, an apartment ministry tutoring Burmese refugee children. And actually, we, we went over Genesis 1. And one of these kids kind of like, well, drawing or I think doing homework, um, he told me, you know, I don't like God. I was like, well, you're in kindergarten. What do you mean you don't like God? He was like, God is too big. I was like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? He said, yeah, God is too big. And I am too small. And it kind of shocked me because it's one, he's in kindergarten. And I'm like, well, I don't think, I didn't know you were old enough to say, you know, whether you like God or not. But it shocked him. He's never heard, obviously he comes from a Buddhist background. He never heard of Genesis. He says, yeah, that God, that God is too big and I am too small. And in a way he's right. And it really begs the question, but then who closes that gap? And I think that's exactly what Paul is trying to explain here. It is Jesus who closes that gap. The creator condescends, right? He, he enters into his own creation. He participates in our human experience. And in that way, he closes this infinite gap. And that was, it was a beautiful moment because I was able to explain to him, you know, this is where Jesus comes in. Yeah, God is big, but God became small, like you and me. So when we read the Gospels, we see this this. This almost this, this paradox, this God, the, the creator, coming into, uh, coming into creation, the unknowable God and the faraway God becomes close and knowable. Heaven came to earth, in Jesus, that gap is closed. To see Jesus is to see God. To know Jesus is to know God. That's why that title makes sense for the Colossian church. Once again, image has nothing to do with likeness, physical likeness, but has to do with intimate knowledge and intimate experience with God. So once again, why is this relevant for the Colossian church? How is Paul being pastoral to them? Well, you can imagine as a young and small church, you may think, well, we have faith in a man, faith in a man who died and rose again, but maybe God is far away. And Paul's like, no, the man who you have your faith in is God. The man you've experienced and embraced is God. To see Jesus is to see God. To know Jesus is to know God. He is the very image of God. And Paul continues, right? That's not just the first title he gives him. He says he is the image, but also what? The firstborn. And that's a very misleading term as well. I've come across a lot of, you know, Jehovah Witnesses, and I have actually a lot of Muslim friends and they always like to use this passage as like a gotcha. You know, like, aha, firstborn. That means Jesus is created. He's not God. You know, y'all, Christians are wrong. But I think that's very misleading. Why? Because this is not the first time the Bible uses this term, firstborn. When you're reading the Old Testament, King David was called the firstborn king. That's, it's, we take that word literally. That's like very confusing. Why? Because one, King David wasn't the first king. He was the second one. Then... He was the youngest of all his brothers. So in what sense is he the firstborn? Well, firstborn here, at least in the Old Testament, was used um, in regards to superiority. King David, with that title firstborn, enjoyed certain privileges that other kings in the surrounding nations didn't enjoy. King David enjoyed a special privilege as being um, anointed by God, as being inspired by God. He enjoyed a status of superiority. So, uh, I am the oldest of three brothers, and 
whenever my dad would come after work, he would stop at the gas station and he would give us like get us like chocolate milk or some candy. And then when we, when he get home, he'll line us up. We'd close our eyes and we'd extend our hands. And my brothers used to fight, you know, like between the three of us, like who who should go first? And then my dad would like you know stop all of us, stop the fighting, and say. The firstborn goes first, which is me. So I'd be like, oh, yes, you know, and I'd get my chocolate milk or whatever. <laughs> so there was a privilege that the firstborn enjoyed. And similarly, there's a privilege that Jesus enjoys, a, superior, a superiority that Jesus enjoys on the basis of what? That he is the creator of all things, that nothing is above him. That's why we have to begin with creation before we understand this language of image or this language of firstborn. Jesus enjoys a special privilege over all things, over all creation, big or small. And you can imagine the Colossian church asking themselves, asking Paul, what about Rome? Is Jesus over Rome? And Paul says, yes. What about Caesar? What about Satan? What about sickness? What about temptations? What about persecutions? What about hardships? Is Jesus over these things? And what is Paul's answer? Yes, he is the firstborn of all creation. Big or small, you are not alone. Your Lord is over all these things. So here Paul is being pastoral, explaining to them that the man of the cross isn't just a mere man on the cross. He is Lord over Caesar, over Rome, over Satan, over all powers. And once again, if your view of this man changes and expands, then also your view of the cross and its ministry also changes and expands. And that leads us to our second point, the grander scope of the cross. What exactly did Jesus do on the cross? And that leads us to verses 18 and 19. What does does Paul say? He says, he is the head of the body, the church. Here we have an interesting, uh, different focus. The focus narrows. Paul goes from talking about creation to talking about what? The church. This, this, this special community that Christ created and established for himself. And here, Paul gives Jesus the title of head over this community. Now, here's the thing. That, that, that title, head, does not always mean authority. In the ancient world, that word head also had to do with unity. It has to do with sustaining. In the ancient world, the head was seen as that which united the whole body. And I think we see that in verse 17, when it says, In him all things hold together. How is that possible? Because Jesus is the head of this community. That's how he is able to hold all things together. It is Jesus who unites and sustains this church. Once again, why is this relevant to the young and small Colossian church? Because once again, it, it, it may seem... Their life is going on in a normal way, in an ordinary way. You know, they're, they're, they're given looks. People are talking bad about them. Maybe some legislature is being put against this Colossian church. And it, it may seem that they are somehow abandoned as if their whole community depends on their own will. As if their own community depends on what they do. And Paul is like, no, it doesn't depend on what you do. It depends on your head. Jesus. He's the one that sustains you. He's the one that unites you. And our passage continues. It says, how is Jesus able to sustain us? How is this reality possible? By the power of his resurrection. Notice the title that he's also given. Firstborn from the dead. Once again, that title, firstborn. Super awkward if you take it literally. Because Jesus wouldn't be the first one from rising from the dead. 
We have Lazarus and other figures in the Old Testament that also had this experience of resurrection. So in what sense is Jesus the firstborn from the dead? Well, that he is superior. His death wasn't a normal death. His resurrection wasn't a normal resurrection. Why wasn't it a normal death or resurrection? Because our passage continues, because the fullness of God is in him. He did not experience death or resurrection as a regular man. His death is a type of death that defeats the power of death and sin. His resurrection is a type of resurrection that outpours life on the basis that he is creator, on the basis that he is God. His death and his resurrection are completely distinct. Man, who enjoys that? Who enjoys this privilege of victory over death? And who enjoys this privilege of participating in this resurrection and life? And Paul's answer is you, the church, Colossae. You enjoy these things, victory over death and this resurrection life. Why? Because Jesus, your head, unites, sustains you, gives you life, and gives you the victory. But Paul doesn't stop there. When we reach verse 20, we see these words, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Once again, this this clarification from Paul is so important because the cross is just, it's a weird thing. You know, it's, it's interesting. I grew up in a Christian household, and I never knew how weird believing, you know, in the cross can be until I started talking to my Muslim friends. They were like, man, you, you believe in, like, you worship death. And I was like, what do you mean I worship death? It's like, you always have, you know, a man hanging there dying. And looking back, I'm like, yeah, that, that is kind of weird for the outsider, right? Why is it that we Christians look at the cross as such a, like, a wonderful event? I actually had this conversation with my wife. I was like, why do they call it Good Friday? It's super weird, you know, for the outsider. It's like, well, why do you call it good, a man being tortured on the cross? From the outsider, it's super weird. And you can imagine for this young and small church, that's pretty weird too. And Paul here is actually just expanding. He says, okay, now that you have in mind that this man is a creator, image of God, firstborn of all creation, you have to understand that this cross is something bigger than you think. What is, he, what is he saying? He's saying that the cross is a new genesis. The cross looked like weakness and looked like death. It is the, in the cross we have the creator reconciling sinful people in all creation towards newness of life. And I want us to focus on something very interesting. It says, reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Actually, that's a very important part because sometimes we like to think of the cross or we limit the cross to simply Jesus saving my soul so I could go to heaven. Not that those things aren't true. It's very true. Jesus does save my soul. I will go to heaven because of Christ. But the cross does way more than that. What, what the cross seeks to do is reconcile all of earth and all of heaven. In other words, what Jesus has in mind is a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus, in other words, doesn't just want to rescue your soul. He wants to rescue your body. Jesus doesn't just want to take us to heaven. He wants to bring heaven on earth. He wants to restore all things. In other words, in the cross and in his resurrection, there is a new genesis, a new heavens, and a new earth. So we're confronted once again with the question, who was that man on the cross? The man you placed your faith in. Was he a mere man? Was he a mere prophet? Was he a mere teacher? And Paul's like, no. He is God. He's a creator. Lord over all. The one who unites and sustains you. 
the one who's bringing forth the new heavens and the new earth. So Paul, as a pastor, is telling this young Colossian church, saying, be strengthened and be comforted because this is your God. This is your Lord. This is the one you've placed your faith in. This now leads us to a time of application. And firstly, we have to ask ourselves, where is the gospel in our passage? Well, firstly, the gospel is found in our passage because whenever we speak of Jesus, there's a, there's a wrong notion that Jesus, once again, was a mere man, a mere prophet. You know? And Paul here is telling us, well, he wasn't. He wasn't a mere man. He wasn't a mere prophet. He's your creator. He is your God. Why was it important for him to come into his own creation? Well, because of our sin. It is because of our sin that Jesus, our creator, decided to participate in our human experience. He took upon himself that wrath. He took upon himself that judgment. But more than that, it was his desire to reconcile our soul, our body, all of creation to himself and forgive us of our sins so that we can enjoy in communion with him. And that's a confrontation for all the audience reading this, for both the church in Colossae and for us as well. You have to answer that question. Who was that man on the cross? Now, for the church, I want, to, I want you to realize that all these titles have a pastoral relevance to you. When Paul says that he is the image of God, that means for us that we are not alone. We may feel that God is very far away in our struggles and in our hardships. And Paul is telling us, no, he is the image of God, meaning that if you've embraced Christ, you've embraced God, God is with you by his spirit. The next title, when, when Paul says that he is the firstborn, he's, that is meant to comfort you and I in a context where we, there's a lot of political turmoil, financial hardship, where a lot of people's health, there's a lot of uncertainty regarding health. What does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn? It means that he is Lord of all things, including our bodies, including our hardships, and we can rest in that reality. Thirdly, that Jesus rules and sustains all things, including small things. When I was working as a, I was working as a head equipment manager for my university, um, for football, between kind of like handling like a full-time job and trying to get married and trying to do my studies and do church stuff, it got to the point where it was pretty overwhelming. And I asked myself, kind of like, kind of like jokingly, to my friends and to my brother who was working with me at the time, he's like, does God care about football? And it's not like it's pretty silly, right? Like, does God, it's a sport, it's my job, does God really care about that? But what I'm reading this passage is, it forced me to, to draw out the implications. If God is sovereign over all things, if Jesus is sovereign over all things, does that include the small things? And I was forced to answer, yes. God does care about football. God does care about our Mondays. God cares about our daily struggles. God cares about our temptations, our hardships. God cares about your work about our marriages, about our relationships, about our school, about our life. God cares about those things. And the fact that he is sovereign over everything provides us that comfort that we can approach him with confidence, knowing that we have that promise that despite things going wrong around us, we have that promise of a new heavens and a new earth. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, you have that same comfort that the Colossian church had that you can rest in our Creator who unites and sustains us forever. Amen? Amen. Let us pray.
Our Father who art in heaven, we come before you thankful for this um, another day of life that you've gifted us. We thank you so much for this privilege that is to be able to worship um, as, as one people for what you've done and what you continue to do. We thank you, O oh Lord, for, for the cross. We thank you because uh, we're not alone, and we pray that you're, through your spirit that you will continue to work in us, comfort us, strengthen us in, in whenever we struggle. Um, help us be more like you, O oh Lord. We pray that you would continue to bless um, this church, that you continue to bless our communities, uh, knowing that you're the one that sustains and unites us. We thank you, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.